This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, doesn't mind flying solo from time to time. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is, well, nobody. Well, that's not strictly speaking true. I do have our fabulous producer and the best young football caller in the game, Liam Flanagan, opposite me. G'day, Liam. Good morning, Scott. So, Fools, I'm here without a sidekick. Uh, Some would say that that's enough reason to turn off the podcast. So if you want to come back next week, feel free. I won't be offended. But if you do want to hang around, I would appreciate it. We're going to do a bumper mailbag. I sent out some requests on Twitter during the week. Doc is away in Canada visiting family. And I said, well, how how do I get the best value out of this for our listeners? And the answer, I thought, was to find out what you wanted to know rather than me just rambling at you. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to answer your questions. Now, before I do, I had a really interesting interaction on Twitter this week. I got a hard time from a couple of blokes who really disliked something I wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. And it was, I, I, to, Afterpay touches the company. If you've been watching it, you'll know the share price is, I don't know, 15 or $100 or $4,000, whatever it is. It has been an absolute tear recently. And it's basically because it's broken into the US. It's doing really, really well. And I said, oh, look, I, I, it's doing well. And that's great. I don't know that I'll be buying shares at this price. The first response I got was a tweet saying, that's complete nonsense. And I thought, well, that's one way to describe it. He's not mixing his, not mixing his words. He's uh, making, a, making a statement, and I like that. The thing about, and this is not about that guy in particular. He, uh, he has his view, and I disagree, and that's fine. But on, t- on Twitter, it's very easy for anyone to have an opinion, right? We all know that. The question really is, on what is your opinion based? And I thought as we start off today, I'm going to answer some questions, and, and it's reasonable for our listeners to say, well, hang on, Phillips. What the hell are you talking about, and why should I listen to you? Now, the, the first answer is, well... You shouldn't just take anything anyone says for granted, including me. So if I say anything today or anytime you don't necessarily agree with, call it out, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on the email, find out from somebody else what they think. Don't take anyone's perspective as gold standard, but also look at the performance, not just the words. There's a great quote along those lines somewhere. I couldn't find it this morning, but effectively the idea is talk is cheap. But when you've got the runs on the board, that determines it. So I will share with you, not for the sake of boasting, but just for the sake of putting some credential out there. Over the last six and a half or seven years, Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service that I run, is up about 65-odd percent versus the market's up about 30%. And that's over one recommendation a month, every month for the last six or seven years. That's probably the best part of 75-odd recommendations. And we're beating the market by about two to one. Now, that could change, as we as we say in the trade, as the legal legals make us say, past performance is no guarantee. But it's worth just thinking about as you see or hear or read anything in the paper, on radio, on TV, just ask yourself, hang on, how is that person doing? If they haven't got a scorecard, if they won't tell you, won't show you, maybe just think about how much uh, weight you want to put in that person's opinion. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, that's it for me. That's the, the last editorial I'll do, Liam, as you sit smiling across from me. Thank, you, thank God he's finished talking. I'm going to go on to the first question, and we've got a question from Rocky V. It's Rocky V Cricket on Twitter. And I will say very quickly, quickly interlude, if you want to get in touch, please jump on Twitter. I know some people don't use it. I know it's kind of one of those things of, you know, it's all about the Kim Kardashians and the Justin Timberlakes. And who's, who's hot on Twitter these days, Liam? Who, who, am, I, who am I missing out on following? Uh, no, I think you hit the big ones. <laughs> JT, and, JT and Kim? Yeah. All right. Maybe Kanye? Mm, not so. I think not Kanye so is more an Instagram kind of guy. Yeah, I'm not Instagram. You on Instagram? I'm on Instagram. Okay. You've beaten me. Hey, uh, how's the rush hour going? Rush hour's flying. You've got an Instagram rush page. Rush hour's flying. You rush talk- hour with MG? Yep. Sydney, Triple M? If there, were, if there were shares available in it, Scott, 
Strong buy. You'd be recommending it. It's flying. <laughs> Liam co-hosts with Mark Guy, who's doing a spectacular job, by the way. So. Rush hour with MG. Sydney's 104.9, Triple M, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. weekdays. There you go. We'll cross-charge the network for the advertising. <laughs> All righty. So, so on, on to Rocky's question, Rocky V Cricket on Twitter. He says, buying shares for dividends alone is usually not encouraged, but if you want returns on your investment, would you base it mainly only on the price? He says, I'm talking about when you've already done your due diligence, which is great, that a company is undervalued and you buy it and then hold it until the price goes up and only sell if it starts heading down, not buying on the basis of dividends. I think what Rocky's really saying is, you know, where, where do you draw the line between when you take your money off the table? If, this, if the price is going down, but the dividends are still strong, is that enough reason to hold on to your shares? Or should you maybe just take some money off the table and say, well, the price is going down. I don't like the company anymore. Uh, dividends be damned. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. Rocky, it's a really, really good question. Here's my broad thinking. As an investor, you want to be able to either beat or match the market return. So if, if you're a retiree, it's a little bit different because you really just want the income and that makes sense. But if you're, if you're trying to have a, a, a portfolio that you, you want to invest and in, you're building, you're compounding your wealth for the long term, you want to, you've got a free uh, pass, if you like, to get the market return. You can buy an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, and we've talked about those before. You can buy an ETF and basically get the market's return. If the market goes up 10%, you get your 10%, less maybe half a percent or something for, for fees, but you get effectively that. Now, that being the case, I reckon if you're an individual investor, if you're buying individual shares, the only thing you should be doing is trying to beat that market return, right? Because if, you, if you're not beating it by buying shares, then buy the index and be done with it. So I, I generally, I wouldn't do either, matter. I have to say, I wouldn't necessarily worry about the dividends or whether the share price is going up or down at least in terms of making that decision for yourself. Use the opportunity to say, well, if I was, if I wanted to beat the market, would I take these shares, uh, you know, would I, would I expect these shares I own now to be market-beating investments? And if the answer is yes, then great. Hold on to the shares, buy some more, do what you need to do. If you're not sure or you don't think so, then again, I reckon you probably want to have only the highest conviction companies in your portfolio. So again, if you've got to beat the market, then go for the ones that have the maximum total return moving forward. In some cases, dividends are part of that. If you own Telstra shares and you think Telstra is a great investment, you probably figure that half, three quarters of your return is going to come from that dividend, which is great. And so you might get five, six, seven percent from that. The other four or five percent from share price growth, you factor that into your analysis. If you're going to buy shares of a company that's growing really quickly, not paying a dividend at all, then again, you're going to figure that profit growth is going to do the work for you. So I wouldn't do either, mate. Is the easy answer? I think dividends are probably. One thing to look at, they're nice to have, they're nice to get. But if I'm thinking about if I'm thinking about selling in particular, I'm only going to sell if I don't think that company can beat the market anymore or if there's a better place for my money. I wouldn't really care whether there's dividends or not, whether it's capital growth or not. It's all about the total return. And total return is simply the dividends plus the capital gains all thrown together. I'll give you a quick example. Telstra, again, I mentioned earlier, Telstra is one of those companies that frankly thus far has been a bit of a value trap for most investors. And what they said was, well, if the dividends say 7, 7.5% and the market's going to grow at 10 or 11, all I need from the share price is a couple of percentage points of gain and then I'll be fine. And as the share price went down, other people looked at it and went, wow, the dividend yield's going up because I'm paying the same number of cents per share in dividends. And that's great. As the price goes down, that means the yield goes up. And so to the untrained eye, you look like you're getting a much better return on your money than you might have been previously. And we've talked about Telstra before. Doc's uh, mentioned before, he's not here, but I'll, I'll stick up for him a little bit. He's not a fan, and so far he's right. I am a fan, and so far I'm wrong, so I'll, I'll, I'll take my medicine there. But the broad concern, those people who said, well, Telstra's getting cheaper at a share price level, therefore the yield's going up, therefore I'm going to buy, were very, very, very disappointed once the share price 
was not only fell, but the dividend fell as well. And so when you thought you were getting 7% plus a few percentage points of capital growth, you've probably lost 25 or 30% in share price and capital gains or capital losses in this case, and the company cut the dividend. One did lead to the other. And that's kind of the problem you have when you just look at the dividends alone. So I would always look at the business itself, the current share price, and what you expect from both over the long term. If that's if that's growth, then fantastic. But I wouldn't just say, in fact, I wouldn't at all focus on the dividends unless you particularly wanted that. And as I said, there is an exception for retirees. And if you're in a retirement phase, you don't so much necessarily, although we'll get to a question about that later, you don't so much care about the actual capital return or even the total return. You probably care about that tax-effective income. So you probably want franking credits. You probably want lots of dividends because you're probably paying bills, hopefully going on a holiday, maybe buying a new car. You want to use your proceeds of your investment portfolio for that rather than necessarily maximizing your gains. But if you're in the accumulation phase, then it's all about the gains, not so much about the dividends. So I hope that helps, Rocky. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's move on to a question now from James. Question number two. In fact, James is James Evans. He's at Evans James E-V-V-I-E on Twitter, James Evans. He says, I'm getting better at cutting my losses, good man, but not so good about realizing profits since I try to let my winners run only to see them fall back and lose a lot of potential gain. What do you need to consider about when to sell a good stock which might have become overvalued? And this is a really, really great question. I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of investors, maybe even most investors make. The first thing people tend to do is they they tend to avoid risk altogether. And so most people are likely to sell their shares before they go up, before they actually start making some money. That's the first mistake. Once you get over that mistake, then as James has, he's great, great, I'm holding my shares now. I'm not tempted to cut and run too early. But it seems like what James is suffering from is you're seeing the shares rise and rise and rise. He's thinking, great, I'm doing a great thing. I'm letting my winners run. And then they fall back again. And he's sitting there thinking, you know what? I really, really should have sold 5, 10, 15, 20% ago. I've lost all that money. How do I make that bit back? How do I stop myself from getting all the gains and then giving some of them back on the way back down? And that's a really good question, James. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to you, mate, stop trying. Quite frankly, it's it's a it's tempting to want to do right. We all want to buy at the bottom. We all want to sell at the top. And what he's really saying is, well, how do I how do I hold on till I get to the top, but then get out before the fall happens? And I think that's a really really valid concern or valid question. Let's use a company you might have heard of, a little company called Facebook. Now it fell this week by I think well, I'm going to say twenty percent in a single day. It now holds the record as the largest dollar value fall, the largest amount of money wiped off a single company in a single trading day, which is not particularly flash for Facebook. I was talking to uh, the Motley Fool's co-founder and CEO, Tom Gardner, last week, and I was talking to him about Facebook itself. And he was saying that the company listed at 50 bucks. The shares got down about $15 when people were freaked out about whether or not it could make money from mobile. And that was kind of a big deal. And, you know, maybe maybe Facebook didn't have what it took. The shares then subsequently went up north of 200 bucks. Now, if you'd have bought at 15 or 20 or 25, you've made... 8, 10, 12 times your money on that journey. Now, the shares then fell back 20%, and that's a big, big, big deal. It'll be a lot of money in terms of total market cap and also individually. If you've got 10x your money and it falls by 20%, you're probably losing something like twice as much as what you invested originally on that one day alone, and that feels really painful. And I think James is kind of alluding to that sort of feeling where you see it go well, you figure you're doing well, and then you want to try and cut your losses. Now, it's reasonable to to ask the question, James, so you, it's, it's, it's a perfect question. The problem is you can't ever know when that is. And I've got to say, if I'm balancing the, the, the question of 
if I've got a high quality company, if it's performing well, growing strongly, doing really, really good things, do I really want to try and work out when to sell it or do I want to simply let it run for as long as I can on the basis that no, you know, nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, you're going to have a company that goes on to bigger and better and bigger and better things over time. Uh, Amazon's the, the simplest example. We've mentioned this one before. The shares went from three bucks to 100 back in 1999, 2000, then all the way from 100 back to nine. Now, anyone who said, I'll hold from three, I'll hold to through 10, through 20, through 50, through 80, when I get to 100, maybe I should sell then. And if they sold at 100 and the shares fell back to nine bucks, they thought, oh, I'm a genius. I saved myself falling back 90%. I've made less money. I'm doing fantastically well. Well, Amazon reported overnight a $2.5 billion profit. The shares jumped another 3.5% after trade, and they're now worth 1800 bucks a share. So in the effort to avoid, even if you've been had perfect foresight in 1999-2000, you sold at 100 bucks. the shares fell, you thought you were a genius, you would have missed out on an 18-fold return from that, which is something like a 600-bagger and 600 return, 600%, uh, 600 times return, I should say, on that $3 share price that it was way back in the day. So that's kind of the, the story. I think it's, it's tempting, James, to want to say, well, how can I take money off the table? I would only be, be trying to sell high-quality businesses if they've had really good growth. And I'll separate here the difference between a company's profit growth and, and just share price growth, right? So I talk about afterpay. If you see the share price rocket ahead of, of, of company earnings and you figure it's just about sentiment and maybe this isn't really underpinned by the company itself, well, that's your first warning. But if you've got a company that's performing really, really strongly, take a CSL or a Cochlear or um, you know Macquarie Bank, one of those companies that just has a really, really strong track record, You've got to ask yourself, if the share price jumps around, is that really something we should be caring about? Should we really be taking our signs, signals from that? Or should we be using the, the underlying fundamentals of the business? And I, I strongly believe it should be the latter. If you've got a great quality company that continues to be more relevant to more people, that's growing profits over time, that's likely to keep growing profits, then I think that's a pretty good sign to hang on. The one time I would sell is, well, I, I tend to use the phrase significantly overvalued. So I don't draw too strong a line or too fine a line on valuation. I look at it, if it, I mean, if it's clearly, clearly worth, you know, way, way less than the share price is currently selling for, then of course you should sell. If, if someone offers you $1,000 for $100 Macquarie Bank shares, then sell them and, and run into the sunset. But if you're thinking, well, maybe it's worth 90, the shares now 100, or maybe it's worth 90, the shares 120, you've got to ask yourself, how likely are you to get that valuation exactly right? How likely is the market to get it exactly right? And more to the point, over the future, is Macquarie Bank likely to continue to grow profits you know, materially hand over fist year after year after year? If the answer is yes, then keep the quality business. Don't worry so much about the price. At the end of the day, the businesses that compound earnings are the absolute drivers of your portfolio, not just the share price that will move around from day to day, month to month, even year to year. If you take some of those CSL or a Cochlear or something like that, this CSL is probably a $2 stock once upon a time. Now something for 200 uh, The only good idea with CSL, no matter the volatility, was simply to hang on and let the business do its thing. So James, I get the temptation. I understand what you want to do. I understand why. I would just say look at the business's quality, not just at the share price. If the business is performing, and unless the shares are stupidly overvalued, I reckon hang on. Just just learn to love the volatility or at least learn to deal with it. That's probably my, my best suggestion. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Scott, I'm going to jump in with a question without notice. Oh, here we go. I haven't sent this into the appropriate mailbag. I apologise, <laughs> but I've. You can always uh, send it to at the Motley Fool AU on Twitter, Liam, if you'd like to. Good to know. There you go. I'm currently sitting on my phone, as I imagine a lot of the people who listen to mm-hmm. the podcast are. Yes. Are there any apps that would be of particular use in terms of monitoring, managing, 
uh, my share portfolio? That's an awesome question, mate. And we, it's one we don't get very often, but I like the question. I think particularly our listeners, as you say, who are probably listening on their phones right now, it's a really good question. You know what my first piece of advice would be? It's probably don't try. And that's going to sound really weird. The worst thing that most people can do is check their portfolios multiple times a day. So if you've got a portfolio app on your phone, the easiest thing you can do is check the price at 10 past 10, then half past 10, then 20 past, you know, 20 to 12. And then, you know, lunchtime, you sit there on it and you're checking the shares. And, and all of a sudden, you can feel like the volatility, the movement of share prices means you have to keep doing something. Okay. You got to buy, you got to sell, you got to, what's that mean? What does that mean? I, I was in the US about a year ago. And one of the one of the most amazing, one of the best things about being in the states is I was asleep during the trading day, and so you go from kind of the news happening around. Even if you don't check your portfolio, there's news, there's headlines, there's so much going on, and you feel like there's so much stuff to take in. So it's kind of this drinking through a fire hose thing. If you actually, if you're maybe if you're if you're a night shift, you're a shift worker, or if you're in the states, you wake up in the morning and you kind of go, oh, that's what happened on the market today, and you get this one time kind of snapshot of a day's worth of stuff. And it puts the rest of the day in context. You know, six hours of the trading day, so much going on, so much information, so much data, so much kind of compulsion to try and work out what's going on, what do I do next? When you flip that on its head and do it once a day, it changes things really, really quickly. So I would say one of the best things you can do is use apps for information, not for portfolios. So so there are some portfolio apps. Your broker's probably got one they're useful to, to run with if you want to do something like that. Just try and avoid the temptation of having a watch list on your phone that you're checking multiple times a day. Some of the best things you can do, so grab a great uh, high-quality newspaper or the Motley Fool's website, for example, you can get on your phone, as, as you may know, Liam. Uh, also, get the Triple M website, I'm sure. So try those two. Um, but yeah, th- those are important. The other thing is there's some really good budgeting apps around. So while you're not asking about, about budgeting, particularly you're talking about more shares, from a personal finance perspective, the phones are great things. There's My Budget, there's Mint, there's a whole heap of budgeting apps out there. Jump on the, the Play Store or the iStore and find out what they're. Um, really, really good apps for basically keeping your financial life in order. Far more useful to do that than try and track the movement of your shares minute in, minute out, day in, day out. I'll get I'll get one of those right now. There you go. I'll, let me know which one you pick. Okay. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Uh, one from John Verpletti, uh, who is a regular correspondent. John, g'day and thank you. Uh, John says, is there a target or ideal sum to be holding in shares when you retire? Now, he also then says, submitted in the knowledge that this is a how long is a piece of string question, but you guys are smart. Well, unfortunately, the smart one's not here. You're stuck with me today. So I will give you a, I'll give it a shot, John, and answer your question. Uh, mate, the, the honest answer is it depends on the individual and there's no shortage of websites, newspaper articles, financial experts who will give you an absolute dollar amount. You need this much money to retire. And I think it kind of depends. Uh, you know, it is a how long is a piece of string question. You're exactly right. Broadly speaking, the perfect amount to hold would be an amount that can yield you a tax advantage or tax effective income that approximates your ongoing living expenses. So let me break that down from something very verbose and, and kind of um, uh, <laughs> not not quite specific. Most most of us during our working lives will be paying off cars and houses. Uh, for those of us with kids will be paying for living expenses for kids, education expenses, all that kind of good stuff. By the time most people retire, hopefully, and hopefully for most of our listeners, they won't have mortgage debt left. They've probably not got a car loan left bit of credit card debt. Hopefully, it's only kind of month to month. It might be a couple of months worth. But generally speaking, by the time we retire, our expenses fall materially. And what tends to be left is education, sorry, medical expenses. And then the occasional kind of replace the car, fix the roof, that kind, of, that kind of expenses that go on after that. If you can think about how much you earn now and how much you live on, take that down by about somewhere between half to a th- or third to a half. So um, if you're on 80 grand a year, somewhere between 40 to 60 grand is about what you're going to need on, in regular living expenses as long as you paid off the mortgage once you retire. 
Then take that amount and multiply it by somewhere around 20 times. Now, the, the reason I say 20 is because you can re- reasonably expect to get about a 5% yield, particularly including franking credits, from your investment portfolio. So if you've got a portfolio of shares, um, you want to you ha- get about a 5% yield on that. It stops you having to draw down the capital, and that's really important. If you don't have to draw down the capital, that means you can basically live on your dividends for as long as you live, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, hopefully 50 years after you retire. You've got all that money there that you can basically leave there, generates a regular income and hopefully a rising income because those dividends, as we know, tend to rise as companies make more money. So that's the that's the easy answer. Take what you're currently earning, cut it by somewhere between a third and a half, then multiply it by 20. If 20 is too hard, add a zero to it, then double it is the easy way to multiply something by 20. And you'll get a sense of how much you need. Now, there are people out there who are going, hang on, there's no way in God's green earth I'm going to have that much money by the time I retire. And I get that. So that's, you know, ask me how much you, as a target, that's the, that's the target. If you can't get there, then obviously the answer is as much as you can, but with a really important caveat. Don't do anything silly like trying to throw good money after bad. I see a lot of people who contact us and say, I'm retiring in 10 years. I haven't got enough money. So what high risk stocks can I invest in to try and make a fortune? I get it. Like that'd be great. So it's sort of like, you know, what number should I pick in lotto so I can win, win the lotto? It's a tempting kind of um, desire, right? We all want to be able to do that, to deliver that sort of return. We all want to be able to kind of somehow magically fix everything. The worst thing you can do as an investor anytime ever, but especially in the last 10 or 15 years of your working life, is to go back to square one. If you've got some money now and you're prepared to invest it, you want to maximize the value of that investment over time, not risk it all on red or black at the casino. And so I get it's tempting to say, well, give me some high, high risk shares that I can invest in and, and somehow rescue my retirement. You're far, far better to retire with almost enough than with almost nothing. And so that's probably the other thing. Don't chase this stuff. If you haven't got the money, you're not going to get there. Stop trying. Don't, don't desperately try and do anything silly. Just invest sensibly, invest normally. There are part pensions available for most people, depending on your asset and income levels. And frankly, even if you have to draw down on that portfolio over time during your retirement, there's a very, very good chance as long as you invest it in growth assets, you'll be able to live much longer than you probably even think on that money. Um, and if worse comes to worse, you can fall back on the pension. So there are absolutely, you know, there's A, B and C opportunities to go with. Um, but please don't throw good money after bad for those out there. I know, John, you won't. Uh, but for those out there who are thinking, well, how do I do it? Uh, the easiest answer is please don't. Don't try. The best thing we can do for you is to help you grow that portfolio over time. And remember, it can still grow during your retirement as well. Retirement isn't a time when you say, I'm going to cash out my portfolio, go to cash and spend 40 years in cash. For most of us, as long as you've got your living expenses covered for the next couple of years, invest the rest in shares because that should over time and on average grow materially and actually help to improve your retirement rather than feeling like you have to just draw down on it and there's no more growth left. So John, I hope that, I hope that helps. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We've got another John. This is a really cool question. Um, this is a very, very different different question to the last couple. John, uh, John Bonini on Twitter says, is there any country that is a good example of how to teach children about investing at an introductory way before high school? I think it's a really, really great question, John. The answer is I don't know. None that I know of do a very good job of teaching about investing at all. Now, I have to say, people, we like we like to blame the education system, and I think I've probably done my share of it in the past. I reckon it's a little bit harsh some of the time. And the reason is because I think, you know, if I think back on my school, well, I'd like to think to myself, oh, I didn't get taught about that. I kind of did. Like, I remember being taught how to balance a checkbook back in the day, and I remember being taught about compound interest. And, and those sort of things, I, it wasn't that I didn't, I didn't hear about them. It's that when you're that age, it's very, very hard to make them make sense. 
So I think you know it's 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 hard to it's easy to give the the, the, the education system a bad rap. Uh, maybe to some degree it's deserved, but more broadly, the question is most kids aren't ready to hear about it or really even contextualize it. There's plenty of teens and and twenty somethings who even if they get the idea. You just, we just don't have the brain development that age to, to do it properly. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to any teens or 20-year-olds who are listening, but we know from science that our frontal lobes don't finish developing till 24 or 25. Um, and so that's not for everyone, of course, and everyone's got different personalities and different abilities to, to think long-term. But that's just the, that's just the challenge. So uh, like that, that's the hard part. John, I think the, what I would suggest is it's, it's important to teach kids the value of money. There's a couple of really simple things we can do. The first is to the extent you're able, if you have kids and they're trying to save some money, try and match them in some way, shape or form. So if, they, if they're going to save a dollar rather than spend a dollar, maybe you can match that with a dollar of your own. Or maybe once they get to a certain amount of money, you can do something to, to match that or somehow add to that amount of money, whether you pay them a quasi interest, whether you simply say, look, if you, if you put this in a, in a term deposit or if you buy some shares, I'll match that money in, in part or in whole. Not everyone can do that, of course, and, and everyone's circumstance is different. But to the extent you can do that, you're kind of demonstrating to them the value of saving by giving them something tangible as a result. The other thing I would say is, is divide that money up. Part of the It's a bit like weight loss, right? Part of the problem is when we feel like we're depriving ourselves, it's very, very hard to stick to these things. But if you, if you divide the money up into money to, to save and invest, money to spend now, and, and if, you're, if you're so inclined, money to, to donate to a charity or, or a worthwhile cause, they're three useful buckets to think about in your mind. And that way, the kids get to go and splurge some money. So, you know, you don't want to say, well, you can't, you can't spend any of this money because all of a sudden saving becomes a chore. But if you start to say, well, how about we divide the money up? If you save this much money, I'll match it. But take that amount and go and buy yourself that toy or that, that, those clothes or that game or whatever it is that they want to do. They get some reward for having saved for a short amount of time, but also that long-term saving matters as well. The other thing I'd say, two more things quickly, is get them to invest in companies or, or you invest on their behalf in companies that they use. So when you go to Woolies or Coles, when you go to Smiggle, for example, if you've got a teenage kid, you'll go to Smiggle plenty of times. Um, if you go to Just Jeans, buy shares in the companies that own those brands. And then when you go into those stores, remind the kids that, hey, we, you know, we own part of this shop. And you see the look on their face when they kind of compute that and realize that and how is that possible? And they start thinking about that. And they start to think about it being owners of that particular store or that particular area. That's really, really valuable. I think that that's an important part of it. The other thing is once you do that, also, if you can if you can get a range of different investments, start to talk to them about the share price. And they'll see the share prices rise. And when they get the idea that, hang on, this thing goes up without me having to do anything. I made money last week or last year or last month. I didn't do a thing for it. That's a really, really powerful awakening. And again, they won't all get it at the same age, but you will you will actually see those lights go on at some point when they realize that, hang on, I'm making money by not doing any work at all. Now, on one hand, that's lazy, and maybe for some of us that, that appeals to us. Um, no names, no pactual, but I might be that person. Uh, it's nice to think we, you know, someone's doing the work on our behalf, but that really does change how they think about the, the businesses that you, you invest in or they invest in for themselves and how they can go about in investing and, and what investing means uh, for the long term. So again, John, I, I can't give you a specific country that's doing that particularly well, but hopefully those couple of hints might give you something to work with and, and some direction to go in. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Scott. Liam. Question. You got a question? Eight, ten months ago, yes, I feel like all that was spoken about, or one of the predominant topics on dominant topics rather mm-hmm. on this podcast was Bitcoin. Oh, what's happened? You've, you've been in. Uh, I, I thought I'd get away with Bitcoin. I'm gonna. I'm jumping on my phone now to see how much money I made. I haven't checked this Bitcoin in ages. Let me have a look. I am. Oh, still up. Um, 
Bitcoin's been, it's, you know what's funny? That's a really good question, mate. I had people on Facebook try and get me into Bitcoin trading, right? Or all of their friends get into Bitcoin training. Uh, trying to have Facebook friends who are like, this is great. This is going to make a fortune. You've got to get into this thing. And as you said, mate, no one's talking about it recently, which is, which is amazing. In fact, I even look back on some of the comments on our Facebook posts and people were saying, oh, that's, don't buy those stocks. Buy Bitcoin. It's gone up $1,000 yesterday, all that kind of stuff. And it was all the rage. You're exactly right. Um, it's funny, mate, that, you know, like everything, that, that, you know, before that, there was the people talking about graphene, which is an element. Uh, lithium's kind of come and gone as well. It's kind of getting coming back again. That's, that's kind of, I guess the first thing is that's so instructive of what investors tend to do, or speculators tend to do, is the latest hot stock or the latest hot thing. When everyone's talking about it, everyone wants in. There was a time when I think it was every single day of over a couple of weeks, maybe even a month, the SMH would have, the City Morning Herald would have an article about Bitcoin, right? It was so big, so many people were reading this stuff, they just kept pumping out the articles. It's gone away now because guess what? The price fell. <laughs> and that's, the, that's kind of the key learning, right? No one talks about the losers. It's like, the, like being down the track. When, when the horse is doing well, everyone's talking about it. When I'm making money, I'll tell you all about my winners. When the losers happen, oh, I move on to something else and we don't kind of talk about it all that much anymore. So is cryptocurrency still something that is relevant for the finance industry? It's funny you ask. So on some ways, yes. Interestingly enough, and maybe belatedly, so that the, the CFA Institute, who was kind of the – think about CPAs for accounts, right? CFA's Chartered Financial Analysts. They're now incorporating blockchain into their syllabus. So that's kind of – like that's almost the, the kind of ultimate recognition that it's a real thing. So Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a thing, and I think it's probably – the concept is here to stay if nothing else. I think what the jury is out on is, is this really, you know, people are talking about having having values that were 10, 20, 30 times higher. That simply has gone away right now. And there's no real sense that maybe we have a, another leg of that growth to come. But no one knows. And I, I will say the same thing now as I would have said 12 months ago, which is no one knows where it goes next. This is the hard thing. What what I think is highlighted is the fact that when, when something's hot, it's all anyone wants to talk about, all anyone wants to invest in, all of a sudden that's gone particularly quiet. Bitcoin is still here. It's still doing exactly what it was doing 12 months ago. Just the heat has come out. Speculation has come out of the market. So um, a, a dozen lessons probably there. I think I still think the blockchain idea is a good one. I still wouldn't be surprised to see one or more of the currencies do okay over time. Uh, but that's kind of, again, the same thing I was saying 12 months ago, and that's probably the point, is it's a bit of a sideshow then. I think it's still a bit of a sideshow. The main game is still investing in quality companies. Have you got any Bitcoin? No. <laughs> I sat in here, I sat in on these podcasts for long enough to know that I probably shouldn't invest in Bitcoin. That's a very smart idea. My $100 is now worth $143.86, as I, I see on my app at the moment. So, that, that look, that's that's a mild win, as I did say at the time. It was purely a case of just uh, wanting to follow along and, and being part of it. I, I, to, exactly to your point, mate, because no one's talked about it for such a long time, I, hadn't, I don't think I've checked that in two months. Uh, so, kind of fascinating to have a look now and, and see what's going on. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Market crashes, fantasy rookie on Twitter. As someone who has not seen a market crash in their investing lifetime, under three years, in the event of a crash, how will I know when it's time to start buying again? I love this question because the question isn't how will I know when to sell or how should I panic or how should I deal with it, but he's already looking forward to the time when the crash is going to happen so he can start putting some money, or she maybe, is starting to put some money to work. And I love that because that's exactly the approach you should have, right? So many people, the way cycles work is that no one wants to invest in shares. A bit like Bitcoin, then they go up and they go up and they go up and everyone goes, oh, shares, shares. And then it's the cabbie and the bloke at the barbecue and the brother-in-law who's made a killing on some specky stock. And eventually everyone goes, yep, I'm definitely getting in. And you could almost write, mark that in the calendar. That's the day the crash starts to happen, right? When everyone's finally gone, yep, this is for me. I'm in, I'm in. I've finally seen everyone make so much money I can't resist. The price crashes. 
which is exactly what happened with Bitcoin again, as as, as you asked, Lane, which is a perfect segue. Um, but it also happens with shares, and we've seen it in two thousand and seven and into the two thousand eight nine crash. Uh, we saw it during the dot com crash. We'll see it again at some point in the next God knows how many years. Uh, so, so you know, it's tempting to kind of go, I'll buy it only when the shares are going up. By the time they do, they'll crash. Then everyone swears off the market like they did in the GFC. A whole lot of people sold out. I'm never, ever doing that again. They missed the, the recovery, of course. So they've actually doubled, you know, had, had twice as much uh, bad news because they've not only felt the crash, but then sold out and not got the recovery. But Fantasy Rookie is saying, hey, when can I start buying back in? I'm going to say that I don't reckon as an investor you should be trying to buy back in. The, the easiest way to do it to, to invest is the way we invest at Motley Fool Share Advisor for what it's worth. We just invest every single month. And so sometimes that means if the market's high, you're going to get a few less shares than you would have otherwise because you're paying more per share. So if you've got, say, 1000 bucks to invest, um, you, you'll buy a few less shares when the market's up. But guess what? When the market's low, you buy a few more shares for that 1000 bucks, and you get the advantage of what we call dollar cost averaging. And that means you're not trying to pick the level of the market just in you know month in, month out or quarter in, quarter out. Whenever you've got some money to put to the market, you want to just invest it at that point in the single best idea you've got. Now, in hindsight, again, a little bit like the earlier question, sometimes you're going to look back and go, oh, that was a crappy time to buy shares. And other times you look back and go, wow, that was a great time to buy shares. There's, a, there's an analogy here with the housing market, right? So let's say, let's assume that Australian housing is expensive. Let's just assume that for, for the sake of the exercise. While the other guys aren't here, I can get away with that without having to have a five-minute argument with somebody. So let's assume housing is expensive, right? Now, there are people who've been saying that Steve Keen, the the, the professor and economist who gets quoted ad infinitum, has been saying housing is expensive for about, I want to say, 10 or 12 years. In that time, Since then, he sold a Surrey Hills, Sydney apartment for $400,000, which I'm sure is worth well more than a million bucks now. Now, if he thought it was expensive then, how much money has he missed out on by selling and trying to time the market? And the answer is an absolute squillion. Now, maybe the shares, maybe the housing price sorry, falls from, let's say it's worth a million bucks, let's say it falls to 800000 right? That's a big deal. That's 20%. That's a lot except it's still twice as much as Keane sold his unit for back in 2008, whenever it was. And that's kind of the thing also about waiting for market crashes. It's tempting to say, well, I'll stockpile my money. When the market crashes, then I'll buy. Now, if you've been waiting for that for a year or two or three years, you've missed out on the sh- as the share market's gone up by 10, 20, 30%. Uh, since the GFC, the market's basically doubled. If you've been waiting for the next crash since then, you've actually missed the opportunity to double your money. And so if the market falls back 20%, yes, you can go and buy cheaper shares and it feels cheaper, but what you'll have missed out on is a whole heap of gains in the meantime. You would have been better to buy at the time, see the market go up 100% then back down 20 rather than not buying at all or waiting for the crash. So when you hear someone say buy on the dips, that is absolutely outright rubbish. Don't do it. Buy when you see quality companies. Buy regularly. Don't try and be too clever. Sometimes when you're too smart by half, don't do it. Try and keep yourself Pretty aligned to the whole dollar cost averaging. Buy something every so often if it's monthly, quarterly, whatever you set yourself to do. As soon as there's enough money in the account, go and buy something. You'll be glad you did. You'll be earning some dividends on the way through and you'll be taking advantage of dollar cost averaging and stopping yourself from speculating on where the market might go next. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Liam, I've got one question left. And this one's going to be about LICs, listed investment companies. Back in the day... Back in the day, before exchange-traded funds, where you could buy one uh, thing on the ASX, a thing, a security in the ASX, which approximated the market called an exchange-traded fund. You can now buy that, and you might get the ASX 200 or the S&P 500 in the US with one single buy. You couldn't do that back in the day. What you had to do was buy a listed investment company. And these companies, like people might have heard of Argo or Afic or others, their job was to basically buy a, a portfolio of stocks in a, in a company structure. And you could buy shares in that company, and effectively, that's how you got a diversified portfolio with one single purchase. 
And so Rowan Weeks has, has tweeted and said, in TMF's opinion, which is the best LIC that focuses on small and mid caps on the ASX view to a very long hold slash accumulation? Cheers. And that, Ron, that's a really, really good question. I've I've been a bit ornery today, Liam. I've, I've said almost no to every question. I'm going to say no again to Rowan just to keep the keep the keep the mood going, keep the the feeling up. I'm not a big fan of LICs at all. I have to say, LICs are kind of it's 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 the old school way of buying that diversified portfolio. And I get at the time it was a brilliant way to invest, right? The Affix, the Argos have been fantastic long term investments for people who 20, 30, 40 years ago said, I want to get market returns from these guys. I'm going to get a diversified portfolio. It's a really, really sensible, low-risk, low-involvement, great way to compound your money. But Ron, these days, I've got to say, I don't see the value in LICs the way I used to because you simply don't need to have a layer of fees and management and other things. And frankly, people who are largely, to most, in most cases, mirroring the index almost and yet trying to actively manage on top of that, if I was going to buy a, 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 an investment to kind of diversify for a long-term hold across a diverse portfolio of companies, I would go back to a very, very simple Vanguard or BlackRock ETF. You're going to pay 0.1, in terms of fees. You're going to get roughly the market return. You're not going to be engaging stock because who you're hoping might beat the market or not. And again, even if they are, they're still pretty much mirroring the index anyway. So LIC is kind of these days a poor man's ETF, I have to say. And while plenty of people still talk about it, I actually asked the guys at work the other day about this topic. So, you know, who, who buys an LIC? Why would you do it these days? And I couldn't really get a, a comprehensive answer. There are a couple of reasons you might want to if you particularly believe in a particular stock picker, for example, or you wanted a particular um, you want a particular type of exposure. You've asked for small and mid caps here. Mate, I've got to say, I would be going for a Vanguard or a BlackRock ASX small cap uh, ETF. I think it's the best way to get a diversified portfolio. You're going to get roughly the market return. You're not going to get taken with management fees and or uh, effectively stock picking error. If you want to pick stocks, as I said, by all means, do it yourself or, or get someone to do it with you, like an advisor like us um, or somebody else, of course. Uh, but if you're going to, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. I think LICs, interesting idea. I like the approach. I like why you're talking about it. Uh, but I would say in, the, in this case, I think you're probably best off to go simply to, a, to an ETF, save your fees, save the volatility, um, save the uncertainty about the stock picker and get the market average return. That's it. We made it. Well done. Thank you, mate. We'll see if we do it again. Let us know what you think, Fools. If you never, ever want to hear me do one of these again, please let me know on Twitter. If you think I'm awesome, then let me know and make sure you tell the boss as well. Uh, other than that, that does wrap us up. But before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money Podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating and tell your friends. If you don't, please keep it to yourself. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with some friends and another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.